Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Now, this Wednesday, which is when your podcast landed in your podcast feed, is, of course, International Women's Day. And here at the IFG, we've done a lot of work tracking the representation of women in public life, in government, parliament and the civil service, and thinking about how the number of women in senior roles could be increased. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by two great women who are also think tank directors, Charlotte Pickles of Reform and Polly Curtis of Demos. Hello. Hello. Lovely to see you. And what the three of us wanted to do today was to have a conversation about what could be done to bring more women into politics and to policy-facing roles, including think tanks, to explore why diversity of thought matters and what difference it makes to policy outcomes. So I just wanted to kick off uh, with a question to each of you, maybe to start with you, uh, Charlotte. You've worked in and around Westminster uh, for many years across uh, lots of different sectors, in fact. Um, What changes have you seen in the representation of women over that period? So I'd like to be really positive about this. Um, And I do think that, you know, as you say, I've I've been kind of in and around policy government think tank for for about 15 years. Um, And I do think there has been some progress. And I think if you look at the policy world, you look at, uh, you know, kind of senior levels of the civil service, there are more women. But, and this is the big but, um, not as much progress as I think we should have seen and I would want to see. And I think you can see that in lots of ways. So if I think about think tanks, um, which is where we all are at at the moment, uh, there are still an awful lot of think tanks, particularly those you would deem as the sort of classic uh, Westminster think tanks, um, that not only are led by men, absolutely fine, but actually where every part of the senior level of the think tank is still men, um, or think tanks where you mostly see women in either the more junior roles or you see them in roles that are not necessarily the the research or the policy content, but perhaps HR or kind of events delivery. Um, So I think there is still some way to go. But the fact that we're all sitting here, three of us, as female uh, directors of think tanks, I I think is a mark that things are starting to change and and that's positive. And Polly, you've got lots of experience in, in journalism and that's really changed, hasn't it, in recent years? Journalism has changed dramatically. So if you look at the number of editors across Fleet Street who are women, it's gone up um so markedly but my experience of Westminster Whitehall and the policy world is that I was um, Whitehall editor at the Guardian 12 years ago and um, I came back um, to this kind of area as um, chief exec at um, Demos last summer and the cultural change um, in politics and policy making is huge and I think a lot of that is driven by social media I think there is a huge pressure, particularly on women, MPs, policymakers, anyone with a public profile, to really firefight on social media. We've got to be there, um, but it's so unpleasant. And I think that has really quite profound implications for our politics and our culture. What do you think it is about what's happened in journalism, which has enabled those those women to get those big jobs? Has it been a sort of a reflection of how culture society has changed or have have there been more positive efforts to make that happen? I think both. I think it became absolutely critical to the business model to be more representative. I think um, journalism was drifting out of touch with its readership and the diversity of its readership. And it was becoming um, a, a male world in terms of readers as well, when you look at where the audiences were. So it became an absolute imperative 
to shift that. And so there were lots of positive efforts made to find the best people for the jobs. Um, um, but increasingly, it became critical that they were more diverse than they were. And and I think it's it's important to say that there's huge diversity and progress across the industry. I've experienced like the most laughable instances of sexism quite recently um and um and in other places like the world has changed completely dramatically so it's a very kind of it's patchy it's patchy yeah, yeah. charlotte i was just going to sort of draw that back to what you were saying about think tanks because exactly what polly says about the importance for the business model of journalism of being more diverse having different voices and we're not just talking about gender diversity of course surely the same must apply to think tanks i mean think tanks are we hope, we all hope, the three of us, you know, really important vehicles for getting ideas into policymaking, into government, into shaping the way our government is. If the people who are working in those think tanks aren't diverse, then surely there's a credibility problem for think tanks. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, I think that applies kind of across the, the, the policymaking ecosystem. It would be ludicrous to think you could possibly come up with the best solutions to what we look at which tend to be really quite tricky, wicked problems, uh, which is the phrase you often hear, whilst only have one perspective. Um, and it's not, you mentioned there, it's, it's, it's not just about gender, it's about socioeconomic background, it's about uh, uh, race, it's about religions, it's, it's about a whole set of people because, you know, at Reform, we focus on public services. And um, it isn't just, for example, white men using public services. Uh, in fact, um, the the need to acknowledge the complexity and diversity of people's lives um, is absolutely essential in trying to work out what, what, how you, you know, redesign, rethink how public services interact with citizens. So, so it's incredibly important. But I do also think it's important to think about who think tanks engage with as well. So, you know, most think tanks will have very vibrant events, programmes. We, we will all have those. And I still find myself sitting in rooms, you know, if you're doing a kind of round table event, maybe you've got 20 people in a room and looking around thinking, okay, it's me and maybe one or two other women in the room. Um, and that's really difficult because that's about uh, who are in positions in other parts of the ecosystem, whether that's partners you work with, whether it's politicians or ministers. The number of times that in the office we sit there and say, oh, gosh, you know, we're looking at having an all male panel because literally the positions we want on the panel are all filled by men and, and trying to think around that. So I think it, it's incredibly important to the quality of the, the, the work you produce. But, but it's not just think tanks. It, it's the whole environment in which a think tank operates that you need to try and get a really diverse section of voices. And sometimes the way you have to do that is is you know, by, by or, or often the way you do that is by going out and trying to find those different voices. But it, it really shouldn't be as hard as it, it feels like at times. I think that's right. I mean, we have a, a lot of the same conversations. You won't be surprised to hear. And I think, you know, there's one thing you come, you know, you've got a vent in a, a few weeks and you're trying to find the panel. And as you say, you know, roughly the, the sort of perspectives you want to uh, represent on that panel and can be difficult to find those people. So I I, I think what we, we've been trying to do a bit is sort of take a step back and say, well, what is our responsibility as a think tank to sort of enrich the policy conversation by trying to, you know, actively take a little bit longer, find some of those voices and introduce them into the policy debate? Because we all know that 
there's a tendency, just as select committees always talk to the usual suspects, so do the think tanks because they find people who have a really clear and compelling voice or perspective to bring. Um, and, you know, we're all small organisations. We don't have lots of, of resource. And I think, you know, there are similar issues around recruitment too with, you know, we can't create a pipeline of people as a, you know, for the IFG, we're relatively large as a think tank, we're only 50 people. We can't create the people who will want to come and work at us. But actually, we do have a responsibility to think about whether think tanks as a sector are, are known about as, as somewhere that diverse set of people might think about coming to work. I think at Demos, we think a lot about this in terms of our research inputs, because we can't change um, Whitehall and Westminster overnight. Um, those events are so often about kind of influencing people who have power and the power structures at the moment are what they are. And I think for us, like the most important thing is that we get the right diversity into the inputs into our research and how we partner with the public to bring in the diverse range of voices that are needed to really kind of diagnose a problem and to come up with the solutions as well. So all the participatory techniques we use, the deliberation we do is about diversifying the outputs by listening to a broader range of voices. And and I think that's, you know, something we want to at Demos encourage the whole Westminster system to do is to kind of get out of this bubble and listen more. One of the other things I think is, is there's something definitely for the think tank sector about practicing what we preach. Certainly this is true of the IFG. We we spend a lot of time analysing government data on government diversity and the diversity of the civil service and thinking about uh, politics and so on. But I was really struck by a report that Smart Thinking did in 2020 and, and looking at the the data which is available on on diversity in in the think tank sector and we were saying um before before we started recording charlotte that you know if you look at certain think tank sort of websites you can get a sense of the diversity of the people who work for them but the data isn't we, as a sector we're not very good at collecting that mm. data and even if we're collecting it to inform our own thinking about our diversity we're not very good at making that public so that we can have more of a, a debate about it mm. I think there's some interesting work going on around kind of working class diversity and class and um, socioeconomic background. Um, and um, I think oh, I'm going to get the name. I think it's Reclaimer working with working class wonks to to kind of bring together the data around that. And I think that's that's really important for us, like really massively important for this sector. But, um, you know, maybe we should look at a way of expanding that across across the sector. Charlotte, do you think there are any particular barriers to women um, progressing within think tanks or is it is it just a sort of cultural um, sort of context in which, you know, think tanks are, are just not looking for, for a more diverse set of talent? I think there are. Um, and the one that I always come back to is networks. And it's sort of cliched because we talk about networks in all uh, aspects of diversity, but um, I, I have to give you a sort of little sense, but um, I have Nikki Morgan as my chair of my advisory board, who is fabulous and kind of one of the most supportive women that you could you could possibly have. I'm really, really lucky. But when I went to her and I said, would, would you join my advisory board and, and would you tear it? I, I was really honest with her and said, one of my challenges is that I know there are a lot of men running think tanks uh, in this industry who, quite frankly, have very strong old boys networks. 
and I don't have an old boys networks. You know, I didn't go to, to private school. I haven't done some of the roles that, you know, other think tank heads have done. And I really need kind of to build a network that can help me to replicate some of that advantage that, that the kind of the guys, uh, and I'm obviously very much generalizing here, but you know, that the guys have in place. Um, and she was brilliant at saying, I know exactly what you mean. And yes, let's, let's think about that. And, you know, I think there's a challenge with um, ensuring that women in think tanks are able to build and expand that network. Because just to come back to your point about a lot of think tanks are small, you know, we're eight people. So, so you know, we're even a, a fraction of, of your size. I can't always offer the promotion, the next step up, because unless there's a, a vacancy there, it's, it's quite difficult in a very small organisation. What I need to be able to help is those women that maybe I have in junior roles to be able to find the next stage of their career somewhere else. And and that's that is in part about networks. Of course, it's about being good at what you do, you know, it's about having the skill set. But those are all things you can quite easily um learn, you know, and there shouldn't really be any difference between whether a a, a man or a woman can can, you know, develop those skills. But actually kind of creating that path in what is a relatively, let's face it, exclusive um, sector. You know, we're small. Actually, a lot of it is kind of word of mouth. People do kind of, you know, talk to each other. Um, I think the network factor and how we enable women um, to make those connections across the sector is really, really important and something which I think probably we we could do better at, at creating. And Polly, I think we've been talking about sort of the things which discourage people also from sort of coming into the sector and whether they know it exists is obviously a fundamental sort of barrier. But I, we did some research, some of our, our, our junior researchers did some, some research on um, particularly looking at socioeconomic background and ethnicity and whether people consider think tanks as a, as a route at a graduate level. And what they found was that exactly what Charlotte's talking about in terms of the perceived exclusivity of think tanks as an environment, but also the fact that um, you might not have obvious career progression, um, and that there isn't a sort of there aren't gra- sort of sort of safe seeming graduate schemes that you can join, is a real barrier to people feeling that actually I'm going to put my eggs at an early career stage into that particular basket. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's easier to consider later in your career for some some people. I think uh, I, I think a couple of about. A year and a half ago, my predecessor launched a trainee scheme and brought on four brilliant trainees to Demos who are absolutely fantastic and brought diversity that we didn't have before. Um, and they have enriched Demos with ideas and different perspectives and just brilliant skills and talents. Um, we found it hard to retain because we are small, because they are ambitious and you know they can go and get a a job that um you know frankly pays much more and has much more career progression routes in the civil service so actually kind of we've lost a couple of them to the civil service and you know I don't regret that at all because they've totally enriched kind of demos in the time they're there and we have also you know think tanks do play a really important part I'm learning in 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 the kind of talent pipeline into the whole of the political um, world. Um, So I think kind of what we can do to help at that kind of very early stage diversify is, is actually critical across the system. I think there's, there's also, and I I completely agree with everything that's, that's being said. I think there's also um, 
Hannah, you said a sort of so there's a riskiness about joining a, a think tank, um, and the pay is not brilliant. Most of us are based in London, so let's face it, costs are very high, um, and, and actually. You know, I'm sure some people listening will think, well, just, you know, do, do it all uh, as working from home or kind of hybrid. But actually, when you're running events, you're doing a lot of kind of debates and workshops and, and you do you do need to be in the office, at, at, you know, at least some of the time. And London's very costly where, where a majority of think tanks are based. So there's the kind of risk factor. There's also, I think, um, you need quite a lot of confidence, I think, to jump into a sort of role where... Certainly, at our think tank, and you know, previously, um, I've worked at the Centre for Social Justice, where I actually joined there as a an intern um, at the time, and you're th- really thrown in the deep end. I mean, you 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 can you're, you're authoring policy papers, telling government what they should do when you're you know some young twenty something who's you know pretty fresh out of university, and I think there is something about how we support. Um, people coming from backgrounds that maybe haven't developed that level of confidence. And I think that is a socioeconomic thing just as much as it it might be a gender thing to sort of say your input, your views are just as valid. And and how do we give you that or or help you to develop that confidence to really play the role? And, and, And then, you know, a lot of being in a think tank is also about publicly presenting stuff. It's, you know, about doing media work. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot, I think, which could appear both exciting but potentially quite intimidating if mm. you're not from a background where that has ever really crossed your mind. Mm. Um, so I think there's also some stuff for us to do in thinking about how do you um, both encourage people in by um, demystifying it and, and sort of making it seem uh, uh, accessible to people, but, but also then in helping people to develop those skills uh, once they're in to then enable them to progress from that point. Yeah, I really um, identify with that. And I also identify because, you know, my parents didn't go to university and and, um, they ran a party shop, which I quite often tell people um, because it it was a fun way to grow up. But um, um, I think I've spent my entire career in rooms I didn't quite believe I deserved to be in. And I think that's a really important thing for new people coming into the industry to hear, to actually understand that because as kind of leaders of organizations, we look so confident and like we're owning the room and all of those things. And I think, uh, you know, when when you have new diverse talent coming into news, sorry, news, I slipped into my old career, <laughs> into, into your organizations to really kind of tell them that you feel that way sometimes too is really an important message to hear. And I remember trying to coaching a uh, coach a um, team member to kind of speak out more in um, meetings, which is like I, I don't know whether you feel that, but that, that like that's a really difficult. How do you have a how do you encourage the quietest voice to contribute? Because often they'll be thinking the most interesting thing. And I remember um, telling her that that I practiced what I was going to say in big meetings. I actually thought about it before. And she was just astonished by this. She thought like like we were all spontaneously that clever. And, you know, some people are. I actually have to think about it a bit. Like, um, <laughs> and and telling that, showing that, actually gave her license to, to you know understand how she was feeling and that and that there's a different way of operating i think that i think that's so so important i'm really pleased you said that and and, um i certainly felt probably actually not immediately when i i I joined think tank world but but i think kind of almost in the middle phase of my career a little bit of a 
not not an imposter syndrome, but a sort of I, I don't I don't quite know how to move from where I am now and how to navigate it. And similarly to you, <clears throat> my parents ran a butcher shop, uh, didn't go to university. So it's fascinating that I suppose we've both ended up in this this position. But, you know, I'd never heard of a think tank when I was at university. I mean, if you'd said to me, what about thinking about a think tank? I'd I'd have have been, what? What Mm. what is that? Um, What You can just go and give your opinion. It's a lot more complicated than that for anyone listening. But, (laughs) but, you know, there's a kind of, um, and I think that's so important that people understand that, there is also, having said, I think there's a long way to go, and I do think there's a long way to go with diversity. There is also quite a lot already, but we we maybe aren't very good at talking about that. Mm. We're maybe not very good at pulling back that curtain and saying, well, not all of us come from really privileged or kind of connected backgrounds. Mm. Not all of us came in knowing what we do or with a kind of skill set ready made. Um, and, and I'm like you, you know, I say to even just, you know, I say just, but, you know, chairing um, a a private roundtable event, which is very, very common in think tanks. And I will say to to my uh, researchers when they're, you know, doing their first one, uh, whatever it might be, you know, you should literally, even just that two minute intro at the start, speak it out loud Mm. because that's how you'll know if it lands, et cetera. And I think those tips about... uh, I had to do that is actually really, really helpful to talk about. My tip is also when you're on in a big round table, not sharing, but just participating, think about something that you might want to say before, as you say, Polly, but also say it quite soon yes. because otherwise you sit there and inevitably somebody else will say the thing that you are thinking of. So I mean, not, necess- not necessarily inevitably, but, you know, because you may be the most you know, brilliant creative person who has a different <laughs> thought. But And you otherwise you sit there thinking, everybody else has spoken, everybody else has spoken. I haven't said, you know, and I'm not sure what to say. And if you say something relatively early in the conversation, you can relax and really listen to the conversation. But I mean, just to, um, you know, talk about my background. I mean, I went to a grammar school. Both my parents did go to university. They're a scientist and a, and a teacher. But I really found, and I think this is interesting in terms of when people get into the think tank sector. So I started out in academia, I did a PhD, but I really felt in that sort of academic environment, really unconfident about being able to sit in an academic seminar and put forward my views. And I thought like, I really felt I can't become an academic because most of this is about self-promotion. Most of this is about being able to articulate your views and to tell other people they're wrong and to kind of be prepared to do that in a very public way and have your arguments dismantled and so on. So personally, my, my journey was that I then went, went and worked in Parliament for 10 years and I you know, became a real expert on Parliament and, and did a much more sort of doing, uh, act, sort of um, applied job. And it was only once I'd done that and felt I actually had developed a level of expertise that I could then later in my career come into the think tank sector and feel that actually now I really enjoy it being able to articulate my ideas and and to, to sort of have a position in a public voice and the networking you know which I used to fear I now find a real pleasure but it wasn't right for me and I look at I mean we we take six interns a year uh, for a year here and I look at the skills of some of these early career people and I'm just in awe of them because, you know, they could do things I could never do at that stage. But isn't that interesting? Because I, I kind of like I, I identify that even though our career paths have been very different, I remember kind of realizing kind of several years into my career that if I spoke, people did listen. And and it was I I watched myself and learned to build confidence from 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 that experience. Um contrast that to a lot of people in Westminster who come here 
and think they are 100% entitled to say exactly <laughs> what they want and everyone should listen <laughs> and isn't there a gentle point about that you know i was in i was in one of my own events the other day and i got caught in a conversation between three men none from my organization and all brilliant in their own ways and um, and um and and it was a fascinating conversation, but nobody was listening to each other. Everyone was just barking at each other, and 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 I felt suddenly intimidated by it. And so you have those kind of responses in yourself that kind of go, "I felt twenty two in the newsroom again." And and I was just like, "Oh come on, they're just wanging on." You <laughs> do, do you know what? That, that, so it's a brilliant thing to say. So um, I spent uh, first couple of years of the coalition as an advisor in the DWP to uh, Ian Duncan Smith, and. Um, we had Maria Miller was our uh, Minister for Table People at the time, who was fabulous to to work with. And again, you know, great to have that opportunity to work with kind of senior women and sort of see how, how they operate. Um, but a particular phrase that she gave me has always stuck with me. And in those moments, I think about it. Um, and she said, I think it was after one meeting we'd been in, um, where there'd been a lot of male c- civil servants. Uh, to be honest, it was possibly with ministers. I can't, I can't remember. But um, she turned around to me after and she said, the trouble is, Charlie, is there's just so much willy-waving. <laughs> and hopefully I can say that on, the, on this podcast. It's not too but, um, but now I just have that in my mind now in those sorts of scenarios. And it just kind of, it just takes away that sort of sense of, you know, and then I just think, oh gosh, interrupt. Just, you know, put these people back in, you know, in their boxes and, but I think on a, I think on a, a quite, I mean, all of this is a serious note, but 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 also something else that everybody should be very conscious of is that, um, you know, we've we've all talked about events where you know how do you make sure you speak up, um, how do you encourage women to do so? Actually, there's a real responsibility that sits with people chairing things mm-hmm. or or kind of you know in leadership roles. The number of um, events that I've gone to and you know events are and pe- people who I'm sure most people listening to this will be deeply familiar with the think tank world but for anyone who, who isn't you know events are such a fundamental part of what we do because it's the convening it's the it's the you know debating the policy uh, etc um, and that's that's why I guess we're focusing a bit on it but so many I've gone and I've sat in where you don't have a chair that's noticing the fact that it's certain voices that are mm. a lot stronger and and actually we have a responsibility to bring people in yes you know each individual has a responsibility to try and put their hand up, you know, to sort of you know put themselves forward, and, and I really do believe that. But equally, we have a responsibility to make sure that people who are quieter, people who are a bit more introvert, you know, people who are less confident. Which, you know, I, I, I hate lazy stereotypes, but I do think there's a difference between the confidence in these things where you know the, it's nearly always in our events a man who's the first to, to talk and then talk at quite some length uh, about the thing they want to say, which is sometimes sometimes not on topic. And it's less so the women. And I find myself having to come back and saying, oh, you know, would you, you know, perhaps you could comment on X mm-hmm. and maybe trying to think of a way of bringing them in that isn't just, do you have something to say? But, oh, I can I can think of something which is linked to the role you're doing or the expertise you bring. And so I think there is something about everybody being more conscious of making people feel comfortable and innate enabling voices to be heard that perhaps wouldn't be otherwise my favorite question when i'm chairing an audience event is um is anyone thinking differently because you so often get into that's quite a pressured uh, question yeah, though yeah. as well like yes, yes, say, yes i'm the one thinking is, differently. Yes, is, is my thoughts officially different i think it's kind of giving like particularly if you're going down a kind of one track kind of conversation yeah. you don't disagree yeah, yeah. I, love that. I wanted to bring in what you were saying earlier uh polly about the way in which Demos uses techniques in your search to make sure that diverse voices are are heard and sort of brought into the policy debate. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, um, uh, so the, the 
our purpose is to kind of bridge the world, the real world and Westminster by bringing people into the kind of heart of policymaking. So all our research projects will start with some kind of participatory um people-led approach and the methodologies are kind of really varied depending on the on the on the kind of question I suppose um ultimately we we care about deliberative forms of um, decision making so actually bringing people into the kind of solution making as well but I think being kind of clear about who you're asking and why um, are you asking the kind of users of a service or ask, or are you asking that rep so that you can understand the kind of political angles on a, on a policy um, and, and really identifying kind of the, the audience you're trying to kind of bring into the conversation is, is really, really critical. And we've just um, brought in a brilliant woman called Lucy Bush from Britain Thinks, who's done this deliberate, she, she ran the kind of place-based um, deliberative practice there. Um, and I think that gives us a real kind of methodological kind of advantage on these things. And Charlotte, you were talking about having worked in the civil service as an advisor, but um, I mean, I think the, for the research we've done at IFG, diversity in civil service is getting much better than the civil service itself. Um, I mean, women are overrepresented within the civil service, although still underrepresented in the most senior ranks, although SES, grade six, grade, grade seven, the, the percentages have got significantly better um, since 2010 in terms of ethnicity, in terms of uh, disability, you know, the, there's, there was a good direction of, of travel going on. What are your reflections on how the diversity of the civil service itself affects policy making within government? I think it's, it's exactly the same as with um, think tanks, which is that you have to have a diversity of um, thinking. And, and I think you're right that the civil service has made really quite significant progress. And, and even since, you know, I, I was there, as I say, in the early years of the coalition, so a decade ago now, wow. Um, and, you know, I would say it was still pretty heavily skewed at the top end uh, when I was there. And if I remember sitting in the ministerial meetings uh, where we had the the um, executive team, so the sort of perm second DGs, it was very heavily male uh, at the time. I think our, our, again, a bit like we're talking with think tanks, I, I think I'm trying to remember our, our our women were not in the heavy policy lifting DG type roles. So I think it has changed a lot. I think the area that there's still a big challenge is actually around cognitive diversity, which often comes from the sort of socioeconomic, but also kind of different backgrounds and experience. Um, and, you know, there's the perennial debate about making the civil service more permeable, because I I, I also think there's... Um, and by that, I mean, you know, pe- people coming in and out and sort of getting different experiences because it- it's very difficult to be able to design policy um, if you haven't got a range of ways of thinking around the table. And I've specifically said their ways of thinking because I, d- I don't think it's just about saying you must have lived experience in order to develop policy, because I don't think that's right. You must have a way of getting that lived experience into the policy design process. And Polly's talked brilliantly about work at Demos and, and how, how you do that. 
And I think probably the civil service and the policymaking profession is still way too insular and doesn't bring enough uh, perspective from um, frontline or, or, or users. But I think that cognitive diversity question, I think the socioeconomic side of stuff is still a big challenge in the civil service. Um, and I think it's great that they're, they're actively working on that and trying to think about how to not just bring in, uh, in terms of recruitment, uh, a more diverse set of people in, you know, I guess we're talking about people who are from less privileged backgrounds here, but also how you enable progression. And there was, I think, if the Social Mobility Commission shone a light on the lack of progression for um, uh, people from from these backgrounds, and I think that's incredibly important as well. Because it's, you know, it, it, okay, you know, if you're a man or a woman or you know a, a white person or an, an ethnic minority, but you're you're from exactly the same walk of life and have gone through exactly the same sort of schooling and university. And, you know, Yes, of course, there's going to be different perspectives, but not nearly deep enough. And and that, I think, is a massive challenge. And I think, I mean, I totally agree with what you say. The latest sort of DNI um, strategy and so on from the, from the civil service is much more focused around socioeconomic background and so on. And, and I think the, the important thing about that also is it, it's not just about recruitment, is it? It's also about retention. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested in, in what both of you think, and actually probably also your experience from journalism on this, but do you think that um, the sort of Me Too movement and friction between, um, well, in the civil service between ministers and and, and uh, civil servants that we've seen in recent years and sort of criticism of the civil service, but also bullying, and I, I've thought a lot about bullying in parliament and so on, do you think that is detrimental to retaining good people once you know we've gone to the effort of getting them in do they then feel well actually this is an environment i want to stay in so i think about where i started in my career and where we are now and the progress is just massive and i've th- i've got this kind of half-formed thought around cressida dick as well so if you think about the progress that she went through from the start of her career to when she ended up and yet these issues were her downfall, you suddenly realise how long it takes to truly get the progress that we need. And, that, you know, I mean, lots of criticism of her and all of those things, but she was a change maker. Like, and it just shows how far we've got to come. So um, I, and, and I think it's also reaching kind of my kind of middle ages, middle, you know, mid 40s. And um, and feeling a, a new generation of people coming into the system who have, you know, the right expectations, brilliant expectations. Um, it's quite it, it's it, it's quite dizzying when you think where I started, the sexism that I knew at the right at the, my early days of my career compared to we are now, where we are now. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I remember like the biggest culture shock I had in my career was going from um, being deputy national editor and digital editor at The Guardian working in a newsroom that was m- predominantly male and predominantly much older than me. You know, lots of people were older than me. And I went from that to running a smaller newsroom at Huff Post where it was all women in their 20s. And in my first two weeks, they all came and asked me for a pay rise. And I just thought, <laughs> this is brilliant <laughs> and also completely unmanageable. <laughs> I mean, I guess my perspective on this is very shaped by my experience in Parliament, where mm. I think you know, of the generation of women who I began in Parliament with in 
the mid 2000s almost none of them are still working on the official side this mm-hmm. is in in parliament and they've left you know for all the normal reasons that people move on although parliament used to be a place which people where people would build very long careers but they've you know also a number of brilliant women left because of bullying um mm-hmm. or because at the point in their careers at which they had wanted to take on caring responsibilities or had to they then weren't able to get the sort of progression that their male colleagues were getting and i think that parliament has obviously done a lot of work on the on the bullying stuff um but it's it's a bit de- it's a bit depressing to me that that there's a there is a, a sort of generation of women that were almost that were lost mm. to that mm. i think that's very true i think um your original question there's sort of so many elements to it and I, i'm i'm not sure all of them would have the same answer so the kind of ministerial official relationship sort of what's going on in yeah parliament. sorry i threw far too many things no, into that question my thought evolved as i was asking it's, no but it's, it's it's fascinating um and i suppose i'm also sort of slightly half formed reflections on this um so there I, I think things have have improved um which is what we're talking about and if i think you know back when i started out in my think tank career which would have been 2000 and i don't know seven or something around that uh, and I spent quite a bit of time going in and out of Parliament and meeting with MPs. And um, I think some of the stuff that we hear about quite often is very true. Uh, and particularly at that point, you know, I was a young female. I'm relatively small. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, but actually I think it matters. And, you know, you walk in a room and you either get the response of, can you get me a cup of tea? Or you sort of get, you know, the sort of attention you're not wanting to get uh, when you walk into a room. And and I get that less. And maybe that is just because, you know, I'm older now and, you know, kind of perhaps if I, my young 20-something self still walked in there, they would get the same response. But I think it is that it's in, in, improved. But I think we also have to be slightly careful. Um, some of these jobs do require different hours to, you know, and this is in no way me saying we shouldn't be as flexible as we possibly can. Of course we should be. Um, But parliament and therefore the ecosystem around it is very unusual. Um, You know, MPs on a Monday nearly always are still sitting and voting at 10pm at night, which is in no way family friendly, but the place has to be staffed at that time. So I think there are some structural or systemic issues which uh you'd have to change before you can say we can actually build in the degree of flexibility around work so i, th- I think there's some some things to be careful about that i also think on the and this is probably getting into very dangerous territory and i probably shouldn't shouldn't say anything about this but but i think on some of the kind of um me too type uh uh arguments you know I mean, I've just alluded there to the fact that, you know, most people who've worked in and around politics will have experienced something which is inappropriate. And there are degrees of inappropriate and seriousness, but, you know, most people will have done and and all the women I know who've worked in in parliament or or, or SPADs or whatever it might be, all have stories to tell of it. But I think we also need to be able to create good, healthy environments uh, for men and women and and I think we have to be careful not to go too far the other way. Um, and I'm saying this in a sort of, you know, as you can see, trying to, I mean, no, no one can see my facial expressions, obviously listening in, but if you could, a sort of slightly nervousness about saying this. But but I really do believe that the best working environments are where you have, you know, kind of sense of humour and a bit of banter and it 
again, in no way suggesting that that should be in, in any way kind of uh, uh, any sort of, you know, even whiff of kind of me too should be accepted. It absolutely shouldn't. But I do think you need to create really good, fun, enjoyable working environments. And um, we just need to be careful not to, I think, in any of these sorts of examples, go to an extreme where we're dubbing something as bullying that isn't, or we're dubbing something as me too, which isn't. And probably stop there before I really do dig myself a hole but 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 I think we do have to be slightly careful in not attributing everything to sort of growing kind of what what is really good movements but also movements that could end up going too far and making the working environment less productive and less enjoyable for everybody and I think that's a, a true of you know all workplace environments and and particularly difficult in political environments where you just have these power dynamics which are unavoidable between people who are elected and people, you know, everyone else who isn't. And that creates for a particularly difficult dynamic to negotiate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's much easier for people to feel that they've been asked something inappropriate on a, any number of different levels. Mm-hmm. If there's a sense of, you know, you have to say yes to this person because they it's have this different true. status. Mm-hmm. I think it, how you kind of own and understand the power you have in relation to other people. Um, and the truth is that incredibly powerful politicians sometimes don't feel very powerful. Yeah. You know, they feel <laughs> hemmed in by the whips or kind of, um, you know, what, what, whatever the pressure they're under at the moment or, or kind of brutalized on Twitter every day, you know, it's, um, and so, but, but actually understanding the power you hold in relationship to the people you work is really it's really critical. And I don't think it is um, actually, you know, obviously, you know, Me Too has largely been kind of in one direction in terms of gender. But actually, there are several um, uh, female MPs. It is well known they are not nice to work for um, in terms of bullying and behaviours. And so I think that power dynamic, you're absolutely right, Polly, we, we all need to be very conscious of it. Um, and politics is particularly acute because of the nature of, of um uh, the way things are structured and, you know, we could get into, we won't, but we could get into the details of, you know, exactly how people are employed in that environment or the lack of kind of any real sort of proper performance management in, in, in you know, kind of in employer, employee support. But actually, you know, all of us should be very conscious of yeah. the power we have and, and how we behave and, and the impact it has on others. The flip side of that is also, as I say, that, um, you do want to build resilient teams and therefore an oversensitivity can also create problems mm. and, and issues. So so it's finding that balance where you've got a really, as I say, a, a healthy environment where everybody feels that they can challenge and question. And, you know, it's not just, oh, well, if you're at the top, what you say goes. Also, sometimes when you're at the top, what you say does need to go. There is, I think, a kind of a, a balance with all these things you have to strike. There was something in your very complicated but very good question about um, about losing women at certain points in their career that I just wanted to come back to because I think that's something I've seen so many times, women having children and then slipping out of the workforce or, you know, just not being able to kind of flex or make the job flex. And I think that's something for like us as employers to think about because our careers are very long they need to kind of you know go in waves rather than in in a, a, a straight line upward um and um and actually you know there's there's a really interesting pool of people to recruit there and after they have children who bring huge experience and um and and often don't see themselves as 
um, candidates for jobs, which they would be great for. So it's just interesting kind of diversity around age as well. I think that's brought us back very nicely to where we started in this conversation. I mean, I think, I mean, and we've talked about downsides of think tanks as careers, but actually flexibility and the ability ability to work um, in a way that works for your um, personal circumstances is a, is something which can be characteristic of a of a career in in think tanks. And I mean, personally, I I wouldn't. I've got to where I am today without working flexibly when I started having my children. Um, and it's been brilliant to be in an environment which probably, having previously worked in Parliament, wouldn't have been possible. And uh, for all the reasons you say, Charlotte, that you know there are some jobs and some of the most interesting, exciting jobs in, in Parliament, which are difficult to do if you need to go to sort of pick up your children from school. But I, but I also, I wouldn't want anyone to listen to this and think that um, think tanks aren't just the most incredible places that, you know, I feel privileged genuinely, you know, and, and I'm not just sort of saying this, I feel genuinely privileged waking up that I get to be in a think tank. And yes, Absolutely. it's wonderful to run mm. one, but just, you know, the opportunities you have. So if there's any particularly young women out there who are listening to this thinking, do you know what that that maybe I should please get in touch yeah, with us right most it. people 100%. are ha- happy to have yeah. that meeting that conversation yeah. talk a bit more about it you know they are the most incredible places the opportunities you get working in a think tank that you just wouldn't get anywhere else are phenomenal so do it would be my my recommendation get in touch with us kind of talk to us about it and then do it Brilliant. <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much uh, to Polly Curtis and Charlotte Pickles for joining me today. It's been brilliant to talk to you. I think we could have gone on for hours. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, you can find all the IFG's podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. We'll be back on Thursday for our regular instalment of Inside Briefing. Until then, happy International Women's Day, everyone, and I'll see you later this week. <laughs>